0: I'm Adam Ragusea. It's the Adam Ragusea podcast, available each Saturday, wherever you download pod. And it's time for Ask Adam. Paul 1662829285 asks, what foods that are commonly available today would have been around before GMOs? In other words, what foods are naturally occurring and didn't require human intervention to become as delicious as they are now? It's an interesting question, Paul. Hold that thought. Relatedly, nope, 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 naw asks, In a recent ad, you, Adam, you mentioned a product contained non-GMO corn. By all accounts, all modern corn is the definition of GMO. Welp, nope, 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 naw, that is not true. To quote you, nope, 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 naw. According to the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, 92% of all U.S. grown corn is GMO these days. That is most of the corn. But given that the U.S. produces about 15 billion bushels of corn every year, much of it for non-food products, that still leaves you over a billion bushels of non-GMO corn every year in the U.S., which is an enormous amount of corn. So if a product claims to contain non-GMO corn, I think we have no particular reason to doubt the veracity of said claim. There is plenty of non-GMO corn to be had. But I group nope, 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 no's question and Paul's question together because I get the sense, and please forgive me if I'm wrong, but I get the sense from how they phrase their questions that they might have some misunderstanding about what GMOs are, which is understandable because GMO is an inherently inadequate term for the thing it ostensibly describes. It's rather like the term processed foods, which if we interpret literally, would cover just about all foods. Harvesting is a process. Cleaning is a process. Cooking is a process. You cannot take the term at face value. So genetically modified organisms, GMOs, if we take that term at face value, it describes nearly every food we eat, which is what Paul's question correctly implies. Paul asked which foods would be the same genetically right now had humans not intervened, and I struggle to think of many. The likely wild ancestor of the domestic apple kind of looks like an apple. It's smaller and not as sweet. But the wild ancestor of broccoli and cabbage and cauliflower and all the other brassicas, that looks absolutely nothing like any of those. The wild ancestor of domestic wheat basically just looks like a tall grass. The seeds on it are tiny. The wild ancestor of cattle is extinct, and so nobody knows what it tasted like, but probably not as good as beef. Humans have been selecting and breeding plants and animals for productivity and for deliciousness for 10,000 years at least, probably a lot longer. Artificial selection does result in genetic modification of organisms. That is the whole point. You notice that one tree seems to produce nicer fruit than all the other trees. A natural mutation, perhaps, results in nicer fruit from that one tree. So you plant seeds from that tree instead of planting seeds from all the other trees. And when you get a little more advanced than that, maybe you graft that tree to essentially clone it. People figured that out thousands of years ago. And when you get a little more advanced than that, you figure out sexual reproduction (laughs) — among plants, I mean — and you start crossbreeding one tree with another to combine characteristics that you like from both. Again, people have been doing that for centuries at least. All these techniques result in different genetic traits than the plants would have had if we humans had never gotten involved in the first place. But a genetically modified organism isn't necessarily a GMO which is why GMO is a terrible term. GMO, as people actually use it, GMO refers to organisms that have been genetically modified via means other than selective breeding or grafting or any of the other techniques people have used for thousands of years to genetically modify organisms. GMOs, true GMOs, have been modified using the new tools of genetic engineering, which is hardcore test tube shit that I don't really understand. And I'll make a proper video about that at some point. It's just a tricky video to do because the topic is so politically charged that a lot of the actual experts who are not partisans in that fight, they don't really wanna talk about it to some guy with a camera. They don't want the grief that that will earn them in their lives. But those are the people I wanna hear from in that video. I'll find them eventually. But anyway, GMO refers to a specific subset of genetic modification techniques, and I think it's fair to say the concern about GMOs has less to do with the means of modification and more to do with the specific kinds of modification those means have made possible. So for example, most of the GMOs people talk about are cereal crops that have been made what they call roundup-ready i.e. resistant to the herbicide glyphosate, which I always say wrong. I say glyphosate, <laughs> but it's called glyphosate, aka Roundup. That's how it's sold in, you know, garden stores. And so farmers can and do spray down their entire massive cornfields with Roundup now to kill all the weeds because the corn won't be affected. The corn has been genetically modified to be resistant to Roundup. It's Roundup ready. And the concern with that has less to do with the corn itself than it does with the effect of all those tons and tons of glyphosate we are pouring into the earth now because we can, because genetic engineering made it possible. That's just one example, and I'm not even gonna get into the merits of those concerns yet. A different kind of example would be BT corn, BT cotton too, although you don't eat cotton. We cotton seeds though, cottonseed oil. B.T. stands for Bacillus thuringiensis. Let me to try that again? Bacillus thuringiensis. I don't have it. But whatever it is, or however you say it, it's a common soil bacteria that produces proteins that effectively attack certain insects, such as the corn borer and the corn earworm and the cotton bollworm, you get the idea. So back in the nineties, scientists basically grabbed some genes from that BT bacteria and they spliced them into corn and cotton seeds. The result is corn plants that produce those same proteins that kill common corn pests. And so farmers don't have to use as many pesticides on BT corn. The corn itself kills the pests. And there are many studies linking the adoption of Bt corn with a decline in cancers and other human health problems associated with pesticides that the farmers don't have to use now or as much because they have Bt corn. Bt corn is widely considered safe for human consumption. Even the European Union allows it. They grow Bt corn in Spain now, a lot of it. But there are people with human health related concerns about BT corn. And in my humble opinion, some of those people are crackpots and some of them are not. I think the weight of evidence right now is that BT corn is no more hazardous for human health than other corn. But those bacteria proteins that kill insects have been found in the digestive systems of people who eat the corn. And some people are concerned that humans could be sensitive to that protein in some way. There is important ongoing research on this topic, and I think that is good. But for right now, personally, I'm not really worried about any of the corn that I eat from a human health standpoint, aside from the fact that I eat too many damn carbs. And even if we find out that GMO crops are bad for humans or bad for the environment in some way that we don't already know, yes, we of course still have to weigh those costs against the benefits. What would people be eating instead of those GMO crops? What are the environmental and health problems caused by those crops? How do they compare? I'll get around to doing the GMO vid at some point. Anybody who has a strong position on GMOs one way or another is probably already mad at me right now because there's a million things I didn't say. Yes, I'm also concerned about how GMOs have concentrated power in the hands of a couple of multinational agribusinesses and all of that. And yes, above all else, I am very glad that very few people starve to death in this world anymore. And when they do, it's generally the result of a political or social problem rather than an agricultural problem. And I will do the GMO vid at some point, and you can yell at me then. But to answer the question you actually asked, Paul... Yes, I am having trouble thinking about foods that human beings have not significantly modified either with old school or new school genetic tinkering. Basically all the fruits and vegetables that I can think of are cultivars that look very little like their wild ancestors. The only exception I could think of is the coconut. So scientists have identified two distinct populations of coconut palms, There's the Pacific group and the Indo-Atlantic group. The Pacific group shows evidence of domestication. So human genetic tinkering through selection and breeding and all that kind of stuff. But the Indo-Atlantic group does not show any signs of domestication. So a native coconut from, say, India probably looks the same now as it did before the Indus Valley civilization brought farming to the subcontinent and all that stuff. But if we look at the world of meat, probably most wild caught seafood is now as it was before humans. I mean, we have profoundly affected the fisheries, mostly negatively, but that probably hasn't had a huge impact on the genetics of the fish yet, at least not as compared to a Brussels sprout, which looks absolutely nothing like the original wild brassica, which just looks like a spindly little weed. And by the way, what does processed food even mean if basically all food is harvested and prepared via some means that could be characterized as a process? I find that a lot of smart people in the food and nutrition science world are increasingly adopting the slightly better term ultra-processed food, defined as food prepared by means not traditionally available in a kitchen, foods that require industrial processes to produce, Why are ultra-processed foods bad? Well, they're not, except maybe they are. We'll talk about that another time. And we'll take some more of your questions now. I have not booked a guest for this episode five of the new Adam Ragusea podcast. I don't think that we need to have another human here every single time. It's just me and you today, though we will still do failure of the week because we do that every week. But right now, Geary Wax asks, What are your strategies for minimizing waste in the kitchen? I'm a college student that often ends up with random odds and ends in their fridge, and I want to know how you avoid too much random food scattered around. Well, we all know the struggle, geary Wax. I think the first trick is to be very careful about what you allow into your kitchen in the first place. So if a recipe requires you to buy a giant container of something, and you don't know how you're going to use all of it, then maybe don't make that recipe. This is why recipes suck and why I only write them grudgingly. I hope that young people such as yourself who watch my videos simply watch them to get ideas rather than recipes. I hope that you watch my stuff and come away feeling empowered to go to the store, see what they have that looks good, that's on sale, whatever, bring it home, and improvise something that does a lot with a little. That is my sincere hope. I only type the recipes into the description because I think I have to, and it is by far my least favorite stage of my creative process. One thing I really like is any food that is sold in bulk, meaning it's not prepackaged in set quantities. It's just sold by weight or something, and you can pick up one or a hundred, it doesn't matter. Speaking of Brussels sprouts, one of many reasons I love Brussels sprouts is that they are tiny and generally sold in bulk, at least where I live. So I can buy one Brussels sprout. And with the advent of self-checkout lines... I can buy one single Brussels sprout without feeling like a total tool at the grocery store because nobody has to know. When a recipe calls for just a little sliced or chopped cabbage, try not buying a whole damn cabbage that you're never going to finish. Try just buying one Brussels sprout. It's literally a miniature cabbage. This is also one reason I usually use shallots instead of onions. Shallots are small and you can buy just one. But if you do end up with lots of odds and ends to exhaust, your best friend is soup. I've said it before, I'll say it again. Since the advent of water-safe crockery, the most popular recipe for food has been, one, take whatever you have. Two, throw it in a pot with some water and salt and maybe some vinegar or something else that's acidic. Three, boil it until it's soft and eat it. It's a classic because it works. One of my favorite things to eat, in addition to being very inexpensive and very healthy. Soup is good food, a great man once said. Dan22456 asks, Adam, you often mention that you are on a constant balance between eating the things you love while also watching your weight and striving for athletic goals. How do you tackle this mental balance day to day? What is your thought process when you've gone on a run and come back and you look at that piece of pizza and say, oh, I really shouldn't. Something that I've been thinking a lot about lately in my body recomp journey and wanted to hear your thoughts. You know, it's funny, Dan, I suppose my experience is very different from yours, at least the experience that I think you're having as implied by your question. I find that regular exercise makes it much easier for me to hit my nutrition goals. I eat very badly when I'm not exercising regularly. And when I am exercising regularly, I still eat pretty badly, but not as bad. Going for the run makes me a lot less likely to eat that slice of pizza. And I think there are two reasons for that. One When I've invested a lot of time and effort and pain into exercise, I don't want to undo all of that work by binging. I sincerely don't want to binge. I'm on a roll and I want to stay on a roll. In general, Dan, I think I have a personality that trends very strongly toward homeostasis. If I'm working hard, I just want to keep working hard. If I'm lying in bed, miserable and depressed, I just want to keep lying in bed, miserable and depressed. I really want to keep doing whatever I'm doing. Shifting gears is the hard part for me. The other reason I think exercise makes me eat better is because of all of the well-documented mood benefits associated with exercise. Exercise makes you feel good physically and emotionally. Now, I've been keeping a pretty rigorous workout routine for the last 2 months or so and I'm feeling really good physically right now. And therefore I rely less on the highs that I would get from binging pizza or cookies. Exercise is filling the pizza and cookie shaped hole in my heart right now. <laughs> no, I did just have pizza for dinner tonight. <laughs> I do I do find that with exercise I tend to crave healthier foods because that's kind of what my body needs. It's like, I need protein. There is of course a giant asterisk to put on all of that, which is that vigorous exercise stimulates hunger generally. So for me with weight training, I find that as long as I get extra protein, which I mostly get from shakes these days, that really takes care of the extra hunger problem that I get from weight training, from resistance training. But I have also with some outside cajoling i have lately been doing some high intensity cardio like these things called uh, lateral line burpees where you do a burpee and on the way up you jump as far as you can to the left or to the right and then you go straight down into a burpee from there and then on the way back up you jump up and then you jump back over to the left where you were before and you just do that until your heart explodes right out of your damn chest That stuff, high-intensity cardio, makes me insanely hungry an hour or two later, which is why I am skeptical of its efficacy for my goals and why I will probably stop doing it. But congratulations on your own body recomposition journey, Dan. Get them gains or them losses, as your situation may necessitate. Elipples asks... What is a vegan main dish to impress non-vegans? I think that lots of crowd-pleasing Mediterranean dishes are either vegan or could be made vegan with just a little tinkering. So my mind immediately goes to like a big mushroom risotto. I would make mushroom stock with dried mushrooms You'll get very intense flavor from dried mushrooms. And then for texture and for the wow factor that you're looking for, I would buy all of the just the biggest, most impressive, most expensive mushrooms at the store. Get some like king trumpet mushrooms if they're in season. Those are, they're massive. They provide tons of that wow on the plates that people would expect from a piece of meat. And they're really pretty. Get some really nice mushrooms, cut them in ways that preserve their shape. Maybe just cut them in half, keeping in mind that they're gonna shrink a ton when cooked. Get your risotto going with some shallots and rice and a splash of vegan white wine, i.e. wine that does not use egg albumin or any other animal products as a clarifier. That's a thing with wine, if you care. Feed the risotto with your dried mushroom stock as it simmers and cooks and swells up. And then on the burner next door, saute your big, solid, fresh mushrooms in olive oil, some garlic toward the end, maybe a splash of uh, truffle oil toward the end, even though lots of people are very snobby about truffle oil, but I think that it tastes really nice. Instead of finishing your risotto with butter and cheese, which obviously you don't want to do because you're vegan, try finishing it with vegan sour cream. They make vegan sour cream that has lactic acid in it, probably made via fermentation or maybe a chemical process. But regardless, it's it's the same thing that provides tang in dairy products. It's that same twang that you would get from cheese and risotto, bio-identical. And then only mix in like half of those mushrooms into the risotto when the risotto is done. Keep the rest of the mushrooms out so that you can garnish the plates with big solid mushrooms on top. And you can make that in a giant quantity for not much money except for the mushrooms. And you can make something that really fills people up and impresses them. And if they're non-vegans, they might not even notice that it's vegan. I should do that recipe video. Thanks for the idea. Hey, here's how I failed this week, by the way. I mention one of my failures every week in this, the new Adam Ragusea podcast. I failed when I got mad at one of my children for being upset. It's one thing to be frustrated or otherwise dismayed by another person's suffering. But I think the very worst reaction is to be angry about it. And yet I think that is a very common reaction. We all do it. When my kids were babies and they would cry, I would get mad sometimes. Every parent of a baby gets mad sometimes. You think, there's nothing wrong with you. You're fine. Everything's fine. You have your milk. You have your blanket. You have a clean diaper. You're fine. There's no reason for you to be crying again at three in the morning. That's what you think. And you get angry at this little baby. But of course, what you learn over time is that the little baby is not fine. Something is wrong. The baby is crying for a reason. They just can't express the reason and you'll probably never know what it was, except for those times when you do find out what it was you think, damn it, you're crying again for no reason. I am so tired. Stop crying. Stop crying. Stop crying for no reason. And then the crying gets worse and worse and worse and worse. And eventually you take the baby to the doctor because you can't figure out what's going on. And it turns out the baby is having maybe a digestive problem, very common among babies. Their bowels don't work very well yet. And they may very often be suffering from terrible like cramps and gas pains and that kind of stuff. And the doctor tells you what's going on, and immediately your emotion transforms from anger to sympathy, or more likely, empathy. When you're a parent, you feel the pains that your children feel, but only if you have some way of understanding them. Empathy requires some amount of understanding. You have to have some idea of what someone else is feeling to feel it with them. If you don't understand the pain at all, you can't feel it. And so all there is, is annoyance, inconvenience. I need to sleep and this baby is crying for no reason. But of course, there is a reason. You just don't know what it is. If you did know what it is, you wouldn't be angry. You'd be sympathetic or even empathetic. It was during one of those sleepless late nights that I realized... I do this. We do this with everyone, not just with babies. When somebody at work is complaining about something and we don't understand it, we get mad at them. Why are you complaining? Everything is fine. But of course, it's probably not fine. And if you knew or understood the problem, you wouldn't be angry. You'd be sympathetic. It's not exactly the same situation as it is with children because fully functioning adults bear some responsibility for their own well-being, and they bear some responsibility for communicating their situation to you if need be. But it's still the case that when grown-ups are in pain and we don't understand it, we tend to get mad at them. When somebody says people like them are systematically hurt by people like you, you might get mad at them. Because you don't understand it. You think, I'm not doing anything. I'm just sitting here. How am I hurting you? And you get angry. Everything's fine. But it's probably not fine. You just don't understand it. And so you can't feel it. It isn't pain to you. It's only somebody acting in a way that interferes with your plans for the day. So my children are not babies anymore. One of them is starting to show the very, very first little emotional and behavioral flickers of adolescence with all of its attendant moodiness. And I picked him up from school and he was sad for no reason and grumpy. And I got a little angry. But of course there was a reason. I just don't understand it. And I probably never will. Zeck one asks, How do you embarrass yourself... And how do you cope, overcome, or accept it? Well, I suppose I embarrass myself in innumerable ways. One incident that sticks in my mind is a year or two ago, I did a recipe for a giant jiggly cake, Castella cake. These are these giant sponge cakes that are very popular in East Asia right now probably not because they taste good. It's debatable whether they taste good. They're popular because it is utterly mesmerizing to watch these cakes being cut. They sort of undulate like ocean waves under the knife. This is why YouTube is full of jiggly cake cutting compilation videos that you should go and watch the next time you're stressed out. I was very stressed working on my recipe for that cake because I wanted to find a way to make one in a home oven that's big enough to do that wubba 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 motion when you cut it. As I recall, my wife was out of town the weekend that I was working on that recipe, and my kids were even less independent than they are now, so I was really tearing out my hair trying to handle everything at the house and also cook 20 giant jiggly cakes or, or however many I had to cook in order to get that recipe done. And all of this meant that when it came time for me to finish production on that video, I was even worse at math than I usually am. I just didn't have the brain cells left for it. And I need every brain cell I can muster to do math. I tried to write a little formula for calculating the ingredient percentages and the pan size dimensions so that you could adapt the recipe to any size and shape of pan. And I forget exactly what I did wrong, but basically I think I did two-dimensional math for a three-dimensional space. And I also think I messed up the Fahrenheit to Celsius conversions. I'm not sure what I did because I will never go and look at that YouTube video ever again, even though I think some 3 million other people have. (laughs) This is how I cope with my embarrassment, Heinz Zek one. I don't look it in the face. I say to myself, that sucks. You sucked there. Let's forget about it and move on. I have many videos I've made that I will never look at again if I can avoid it. I just don't think about it. And that is the only thing that makes me feel better. I think this is a coping strategy that works better the older you get. It did not work at all for me when I was like 14, because when I was 14, I had only done like two things in my whole life. So when I biffed one of them, it was really hard to look away from that embarrassment because I only had two things in my whole field of view. Being a teenager is a nightmare and I would never go back to that for all the tea in China. Now at age 40, I have done so many things. I have been so many places, I've met so many people, I've had so many relationships of various kinds, and I have made a million things. I have created so many videos and songs and articles and podcasts. And if some of them embarrass me, which they absolutely do, I can just think about the other ones because I have so many other ones to think about. This is a privilege of getting older that I think other older people maybe take for granted. When you're young, the stakes are so much higher for every minute of your life because each of those minutes is proportionally so much more of your total life than it is when you're much older. As older people, I think we are often annoyed when young people come off as tryhards, insufferable tryhards. When young people show off really conspicuously, they use big words in a meeting or something and just take up a lot of the oxygen in the room, trying to show everyone else how smart they are. I did that when I was younger. I'm sure I still do it now, but not nearly as much because I'm not clawing and scratching to secure my place in the world anymore. I have a seat at the table. I've gotten a lot of at-bats and I know I'm gonna get a lot more at bats later. So I don't feel the pressure, the need, to swing wildly at every ball that whizzes by. I can just be cool and hang back. Maybe let somebody else take a swing at it. But when you're young, you have no idea if you're gonna get your chance or if you're gonna have any more chances. And so you kinda have to bring it every time. And that is exhausting. And since you're young and inexperienced, you probably aren't very good at it yet, whatever it is. So you're going to be an insufferable tryhard and you're going to swing for that ball with all your might and you're going to miss and fall on your face. And that memory is going to haunt you and embarrass you constantly because you have so few other memories yet to focus on instead. And with some luck, you'll get older and gradually things will get easier. That is the best advice I've got, Zek one Stay alive, and eventually it'll get better. Ab Frodo writes, "'We're shopping for a new oven, double wall oven, and are curious about combination speed ovens. These are supposedly an all-in-one microwave and convection oven. This would replace one of the two traditional ovens, and we rarely have both going at the same time. Have you used one? If so, would you recommend it? Are they good or, or a gimmick?' Well, Ab, Frodo, I have not tried them. I am intrigued to, I've heard about them, these combination convection microwave thingies. It seems to me quite possible that a combination of a microwave, that microwave heating and the conventional radiation and convection heating, that could be really effective. But the reason I am skeptical about them is that I don't think that heating is the choke point slowing things down In a typical home kitchen our problem is generally not that it takes too long to get things hot we can make things extremely hot extremely fast the choke point is the prep the slicing and the dicing the prep when heating is the choke point the problem usually is not that we can't get the thing hot enough fast enough That's really only ever true like twice a year when you roast a giant turkey or something like that. Most of the time, if heating is the choke point, it's because you want to hold something at a very low temperature, comparatively low temperature, for a very long time. So like braising, stewing, slow roasting. And in that case, I don't see how a speed oven would help you because the problem is not that you need more heat or more mechanisms of transferring that heat into the food, the problem is simply that you need more time to hold the food at the modest temperature that you can achieve in a few minutes with conventional equipment. So that's what I always wonder when I see the ads for these fancy new speed ovens, but I have never touched one, and maybe I'm missing something, and they're awesome. I thought that tabletop convection ovens were stupid until I tried one, and now the only thing that I think is stupid is the name that people usually use in reference to tabletop convection ovens, which I refuse to say, but it rhymes with bear flyer. And lastly for today, Ethan Silvernail writes, I just finished listening to We Didn't Start the Podcast, and I was wondering how or if your thoughts on Mr. Billy Joel have evolved since then. I'd always appreciated Joel's music, but your more critical takes helped me develop a more nuanced perspective. Well, thanks for listening, Ethan. Ethan is referring to a podcast that I made some years ago with my friend Meg, where we listened to every Billy Joel album and made fun of them one by one. It's called We Didn't Start the Podcast, and you can listen to it if you want. And I would say, Ethan, that uh, Meg and I were chiefly trying to make a comedy show with that podcast. We said all kinds of things that we might not have even really believed, but we believed that they would be funny, so we said them. And I'm not so sure that such a podcast is a net positive force in the world. (laughs) And I sometimes wish I could take back that whole series because it was pretty brutal, if funny. Because Billy Joel was legit on fire in the years during which he was on fire. He was one of the greats. He's not one of my favorites. But the thing about Billy Joel that I think about more and more and more every year that I get older, which is every year, what I think about is how Joel retired from writing and recording new music. He went out not on top, but almost on top. His last record was a bit of a decline, but he was still really popular, really successful, really firing on most cylinders. He made River of Dreams his last record when he was just a couple of years older than I am now, and then he stopped. He effectively retired. He continued to tour and play his old hits, which he still does a little to this day, but that's basically retirement. He's got a giant band now, and they can pick up all the slack for him on stage. He is cruising, and he's the first to admit that he's cruising. Billy Joel says he stopped making records because he felt he'd had his say. And I think he was right. He totally could have kept making records and they would have been okay and people would have bought them, but he had nothing new left to say. And I think most songwriters don't have anything new left to say by the time they hit their mid-40s. They might get better and better at saying what they have to say, but they've already said it. So even somebody much younger, like Taylor Swift, who is in the prime of her career right now, she is kicking ass left and right. My wife listens to Taylor, so I listen to Taylor too. And all of these new albums she's been cranking out are beautifully done. And each song has at least one line that is really memorable and evocative Um, girls carrying their shoes down in the lobby is one that sticks in my mind from a song that Lauren was listening to the other day. That's a sentence fragment, not even a sentence. It's a fragment that is more evocative of a certain time and place and phase of life than most whole songs are. But as much as I admire Taylor, I do kind of feel like she's getting to the point now where she's said just about all she has to say. And she's getting better and better at saying it with each record, but she's already said it. And I kind of wonder if it wouldn't be better for her artistic legacy and perhaps better for the broader culture if she pulled a Billy Joel soon and just decided to go out on top or near the top. I think... Elton John and Paul McCartney and Bob Dylan's legacies would have been enhanced if they had stopped making records many decades ago, just like Joel did. But here's the problem with that, that I keep thinking about more and more every year I get older, which is every year. Here's the problem with that. Not making records has been good for Joel's legacy, I think but it seems to have been very bad for Joel himself. You gotta use it or lose it in this life. And people who retire early from doing anything that requires great effort, they just tend to fade away really fast. They atrophy, cognitive decline, physical decline. Maybe Joel has loved every minute of this quiet, lazy second half of his life. But from the outside, like I worry about him. And I worry about myself as I get older. Will I know when it's time to stop making YouTube videos? Will I know when I've said everything I have to say? Have I already said everything I have to say? And if I stop, what will become of me? <laughs> and my career is going well enough right now that if I'm smart and cautious, I could financially retire pretty early. I mean, not anytime soon, but significantly earlier than 67, which is the theoretical retirement age here in the United States, even though most of us expect to work until we die. And maybe my run of good luck will end sooner than I think. And I'll still have to work until I die, which is what I was expecting anyway. So, you know, it would be fine. Maybe it'd be better for me to work until I die. People need work to stay sharp. And people who are really good at retirement tend to find ways of continuing to work. They volunteer, right? They keep doing their profession like 10 or 20 hours a week. Those are all really great things. I wonder if I am strong enough to do those things if and when I have the option to not do them. (laughs) I tend toward homeostasis. When I'm working hard, I can't stop working hard. When I'm lying in bed, I can't stop lying in bed. So yeah, I'm incredibly grateful that people watch my videos and listen to my little podcast this far into it, but I do worry about the diseases of success. This is how my thinking on Billy Joel has evolved, Ethan Silvernail. Thank you for your questions. Right now, I am accepting questions over on the Apple Podcasts app, leave a rating, and a real review for this show on the Apple Podcasts app that helps other people find the show there. And at the end of your review, you can leave a question that you wanna hear me try to answer in the review. I will accept questions some other ways sometime pretty soon, but for let's say one more cycle, I'll take them over on the Apple Podcasts app in the reviews. And other humans will appear on this show too. (laughs) I think that I will have a guest on most days And I've got some pretty exciting ones in the pipeline. People who will no doubt elicit the comment, oh, I didn't see that collab coming. Thank you for coming to the Adam Ragusea podcast. And I'll talk to you on the next one.